0: This morning, uh, we're starting a new series on the book of 1 Peter. If you've been following along in the lectionary readings that we sent out from the Book of Common Prayer, you'll notice that 1 Peter is an Easter season book that's read traditionally after Easter, and in fact, throughout this upcoming week, you'll be reading from 1 Peter in the lectionary. It is a book, I feel, of profound relevance for the time we are in. It has been called a condensed resume of the faith. It is full of rich teaching, concrete, practical, tough love. There's a lot of tough love in 1 Peter. It's a wonderful place to see the axiom that high theology is highly practical, working itself out. So the author here, of course, is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Restored to feed the sheep after his betrayal of our Lord decades ago. And we see him doing that just here. And because he's an apostle, it means he's authorized by the Lord himself, having the Lord's own authority, if you will, to instruct and to nourish and to comfort the church. Peter writes somewhere around 63 A.D. He writes from the city of Rome, where he was, according to solid tradition, just a few years later, martyred. Rome is symbolically called Babylon. You can see that at the end of the letter, in 1 Peter 5, verse 13. Peter says he writes from Babylon. So Rome is Babylon, just as it is called Babylon throughout the book of Revelation. So it's from Rome, or from Babylon, the capital of the empire, to a people living under the growing dominion of the Roman beast that Peter writes. And so we're going to make two points. They should be on your outline, your insert. Exiles and election. So first then, exiles. After identifying himself, Peter begins this way. To God's elect, exiles, or strangers, exiles, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia and Cappadocia and Asia. Notice, first of all, the letter is a general letter, a widely distributed letter, what what today we call a Catholic small c, a universal epistle, meaning that Peter writes not merely to one church. He writes to this wide swath of believers scattered across a large chunk of what is today Turkey. And so the book has a kind of universal feel, a sense that it applies like a pastoral letter to the church universal, to the church everywhere and always. The book is not bogged down in personal details or local issues of any given congregation. And the Christians to whom Peter writes, note, are scattered throughout the provinces. The word for scattered is the word we get diaspora from. We speak of the Jews of the diaspora, meaning the the Jews in exile, the Jews scattered from their own homeland. But Peter is writing predominantly to a Gentile audience. These are people, and we know this from the rest of the book, these are people who, Peter says, inherited a futile way of life from their forefathers. Something he'd be highly unlikely to say of his own Jewish heritage. These are people who indulged in pagan sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, and general debauchery, which even nominal Jews would find abhorrent. These are people whose neighbors, the book will tell us, are shocked when they cease to live a life of immoral dissipation, which would be true of Gentiles, but not of Jews. And finally, we're told in chapter 2 that these are people who were not the people of God, who had not received mercy, but now they are the people of God. Now they have received mercy. So Peter is writing to Gentile Christians, and as the New Testament does everywhere, He takes the language that the Old Testament applies to Israel and he applies it to the church. For she is the fulfillment of God's purposes with Israel. She is the Israel of God. So diaspora then refers to the scattered church, scattered away from her true homeland. And it's qualified here and interpreted by the word exiles. Exiles scattered. Exile is a key theme in the epistle because it's a key motif for Christian existence. The word for exiles here means transience. Peter will use another word later that means resident alien. But this word here, exiles, is lighter It's more vaporous. It means people passing through. Vagabonds. Transients. Transients of the scattering. Homeless ones of the scattering. That is how Peter designates the church. Resident alien, which he'll use later, stresses that we're living away from our true home. Transient stresses that we are wayfarers, pilgrims journeying toward our true home. So clearly the two ideas are related, and we'll use them basically interchangeably throughout this series. But we need to unpack this a little bit, because it's critical that we get this right. There are two reasons Throughout scripture, for this exile sentiment, for this alien sentiment. Two reasons for it. First is this first is the brevity or the vaporizing shortness of life. Right? The whole book of Ecclesiastes, which I would also commend to you as an important book in a time of pandemic, but the whole book of Ecclesiastes is taken up with this idea that life has a sort of vaporizing vanity to it. But let's use Psalm 39 as just an example of this theme. Psalm 39 says this, Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. It's one thing to acknowledge this sort of intellectually. The psalmist wants it to hit home profoundly. He wants to be dislodged by it. Show me, let me know. You have made my days a mere hand breath. You know, about that much. A hand's breath. The span of my years, he says, are as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath. Puff. Surely, everyone goes around as a mere phantom. Psalm 39. Then the psalmist says this. For I dwell with you, I dwell with you, as an alien, as a stranger. Now get this, listen. I dwell with you as an alien, a stranger, as all my fathers were. All Israel dwells with God as strangers. Because, like all human beings, they are vaporizing puffs of smoke. We are not home until we are in immortal, deathless, virusless glory. When this perishable puts on the imperishable, then we sing the taunt. In 1 Chronicles 29, just to continue on this first reason for this exile sentiment in scripture, David, who is the king, in the land now, Having conquered his enemies, David is praying for the gifts being given to build the temple. And he says this, Everything we have comes from you, O Lord, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens in your sight, as were all our forefathers. Our days on earth are but a shadow. Shadows, right, lack consequential substance. Thus, everyone, David affirms, all our fathers, everyone is a stranger, a pilgrim, a wayfarer. Until we are immortal, we are puffs of smoke. So that's the first basic reason in the Bible for the sentiment deeply rooted in the bones and the DNA of of the Catholic Church, historically, Of being pilgrims. The second biblical reason for this sentiment is what we heard in the Old Testament lesson from Leviticus 25. And this brings us much closer to what Peter's after. Leviticus 25 says this The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. It's an astonishing statement. The land is the Lord's. Israel exists in it as tenants, the text says, tenants, foreigners and strangers. And thus the psalmist in general could say to God, you are my portion, my inheritance. Lord." That, That language of God being our portion, it reflects the state of the Levites in Israel. They did not get a tribal land inheritance. The Lord said to them, I am your share. But, and this is important, the Levites dramatized, or they, sh- they showed forth, the reality of all Israelites. They were all, we are all, but temporary tenants in the land. Strangers before the Lord, even in Canaan. Thus, for example, the psalmist in Psalm 119, who is not in exile, he is not in Egypt, he is not in Babylon, he is in Canaan, in the promised land, says, do not hide your commandments from me, O Lord, for I am a stranger and a sojourner in the earth. One cannot even engage scripture without this sentiment. So. As Israel was strangers or transients in the land, so the church, Peter says, scattered is a body of transients in the earth. So we are exiles because we are exiled from, and we are sojourners on the way to our true homeland, which is heaven itself, because our true homeland is the triune God. God was their portion for Israel. They lived as aliens in the land. And yet, and yet, the land could be spoken of as their inheritance. So I want to unpack that a little bit too. There's a key thing to see about the land in the Old Testament. Not only is it a pledge that the saints will inherit the whole world, the whole new creation, but the land is a type meaning it's an Old Testament picture of heaven itself. You know where's a good place to, to hear this is in so much of the hymnody of the church, which speaks about crossing Jordan and going over into Canaan, being associated with dying, and going into heaven, into the Lord's immediate presence in the highest heavens. For our closing hymn today, we're going to sing number 598. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah. It has this verse in it. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. You see the instinct there, right? Canaan is heaven. The scriptural reasons behind this kind of hymnody, the instincts behind it are profound and solid. Deep, in fact. fact, consider the following. The Old Testament land, Israel's country, their nation. Hebrews 11 tells us that the saints then and Christians now desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Our country, our land, is heavenly. What else made the land the land? Well, the city of Jerusalem. But the New Testament teaches us that our Jerusalem is the Jerusalem from above. She is our mother. She is the heavenly city. What else was in the land that made it the land? Mount Zion was in the land. But now Mount Zion is what we come to when we are lifted up into heaven itself, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. The sanctuary, where all the priestly service was done, with its holy of holies, is the centerpiece of the land, but we know it was a copy. It was a shadow of a heavenly sanctuary, and that Jesus has entered that very heavenly holy place in the highest heavens before the face of God. What else made the land the land? The land was the place where the Davidic throne was, from which the king reigned. And Jesus has now assumed the Davidic throne in heaven. So the land itself, the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the sanctuary, the Davidic throne, are now all heavenly realities. This is why Peter will say in verse 4, not in our text today, but Lord willing, what we'll look at next week, that your inheritance is reserved or kept for you in heaven. And a people oriented toward heaven, a people whose life, whose treasure, whose inheritance, whose affection, whose citizenship, whose bridegroom and Lord are in heaven, such a people are transients in the earth. You know, I think one can listen to the whole coronavirus debate in public. Regardless of where one is on the spectrum of opinions and not hear the voice of a single exile. A single transient. A single person. Who is displaced from the earth and whose affections are above. Now, this may seem too otherworldly. It might seem too wispy. Or too pie in the skyish. But I assure you, it is not. What is required, especially in our time, is a people who think of heaven. And heaven here, by the way, is a created place. It's where God's glory shines out. It's where his angelic hosts are. It's where the spirits of the righteous made perfect are. It's where Jesus and his humanity is in communion with the Father. And what is needed are a people who think of heaven itself as more solid, more real, more concrete, more enduring, more powerful, infinitely more loving than all the kingdoms of the world. For the transfigured bridegroom and his glorious face are there. Such people want more of this pie in the sky. They know that the world itself has been dislodged from the center of our affections. And yet, the world, dislodged from its claim to to take up the center of gravity of our affections, is not left behind here. Peter will call us to soberly witness in it. He is no utopian but he will call us to live in the world with a gritty realism throughout the letter. And he expects these scattered exiles to ultimately be vindicated. How can that be the case? Well, he knows that having our inheritance in heaven means that when heaven itself descends, when the veil between this creation and heaven itself is torn and when our Jesus appears in visible glory with the burning, fiery, angelic hosts and with his departed saints, when the heavenly city descends, which John sees at the end of the Bible, when the new creation appears, it will heavenize this creation. It will transfigure this created order even in the molecular and subatomic level. It will reconstitute the world that will be the destruction of death. Right? That will be the end of plague. It will be the end of flus. It will be end, the end of every source of morbidity or mortality. That will be the end of all satanic powers. That will be the eradication of evil, the resurrection of the dead, the emptying of the cemeteries, the vindication of every Christian martyr the vindication of the poor and the oppressed and the weak and the powerless, that event penetrates back to the foundation of the world and rectifies and heals the whole cosmos. Then, the glory, the visible radiance of God will flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. Then the whole groaning creation will be liberated, lit up, escalated in splendor far beyond Eden by the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Nothing short of this is the Christian hope. And nothing short of this is the Christian inheritance. Heaven, it turns out, is the epicenter of the Christian life from which and out of which we think, whether it be about viruses or whether it be about ants, It is the epicenter of the new creation. It is where our life is already hidden with Christ in God. We get the whole creation as our inheritance because we get heaven itself. We don't move from earth to heaven. We move from heaven to earth. And having heaven, possessing heaven, being in heaven, we get the transfigured earth as our inheritance as well. Heaven, then, is the place from which, Paul tells us, we shall be revealed, seen openly, in glory, when Christ's transfigured glory is revealed. The meek shall indeed inherit the earth, precisely because their inheritance is kept and reserved for them in heaven. And until they do inherit, they reside as exiles, and strangers in it. We have the gift of the Spirit now, which Paul tells us repeatedly is a down payment, a pledge, a foretaste of our full inheritance. And having that, we yearn for the full inheritance. We live, Peter says then, as scattered transients, exiles, Second, then, is election. We are exiles. Nevertheless, the qualifier is important. We are elect exiles. This is how Peter begins comforting and encouraging these harassed, suffering transients. With the doctrine of election. This, and no earthly consolation, is the root of your dignity. Dignity. Right, the root of your security, the ground of your hope. We have been chosen, Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, so that being a member of God's household, God's people, is not determined by blood or by descent. They are not all Israel who are from Israel. It is determined by the sovereign God's electing mercy. Where is the church's anchor? I love the image in the book of Hebrews where the author says, our anchor has taken its root inside the veil. Normally, an anchor for a ship is thrown over the side and goes down. But our hope is our anchor, and the writer pictures our anchor as being thrown into heaven, piercing the heavens and into the highest heavens before the face of God itself and being rooted right there in the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is. That's where the church is anchored. She is anchored in the being of the electing God. You could listen to to weeks and weeks and weeks of coronavirus commentary from Christian people and never get the point that the church's anchor, its place of stability, is heaven itself inside the veil where Christ is. It's always about who can move the chess pieces on the earthly board better than the other guy. We are chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that's not just God's bare cognition, his bare knowledge of the future. To be known by God is to be loved by God. Right? Through Amos, God says to Israel, you alone, of all the peoples on the earth, I have known, meaning I have loved. Right? To be known by God is to be loved by God. To be foreknown by God is to be loved by God from all eternity. To be foreknown is equivalent with being elect. And this election is made operative in our lives, the text says, meaning it comes into being in your own life through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2 says much the same thing. God has chosen you through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Election is unto holiness, Ephesians 1, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. And what does Paul say right before that in Ephesians? This this might be relevant in our current crisis. That God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. He chose us to be holy. So here's a question. Here's a question we might ask. What is God doing in the earth, in history? Well, he's doing what he's always been doing. He's creating, by the Spirit, a holy people, conformed to his glorious image, the image of his Son, for fellowship or communion with himself, now by faith, later by sight, in glory, in a renewed cosmos. So that the only tragedy that can befall us in life is to not be a saint. One could be right or one could be wrong about their position on the virus. Believe me, I've heard six or eight or ten different positions from Christians. But here's what I would say as a pastor. If this time is not creating deeper greater, wider sanctity in you, you are wasting it. You are wasting it. The only tragedy that can befall a Christian is not to become holy. The, the Hebrew Christians, the text tells us in the book of Hebrews, joyfully accepted the seizure of their property, knowing that they had a better and abiding possession In heaven. They wanted to be saints. They wanted to be made holy. If we had to choose between being wrong. And manifesting humility and holiness. And being right. And not. We would choose the former. We are called to be transformed. Ultimately transfigured. By the holy light of God's Spirit. So our election originates in the Father. It's made alive. It operates in us through the Spirit. And its goal, what's its object? It's obedience to Jesus Christ, an embrace of the gospel and being sprinkled with his blood. Peter knows the gospel's been at work in this community, so he, he, in a judgment of charity, considers them all to be elect. We have here a beautiful, compact statement of the unified work of the Holy Trinity. The Father chooses, the Son redeems, the Spirit sanctifies. So let us conclude. This opening of the letter, as the whole letter of First, uh, First Peter, by the way, is a basic identity statement by the Apostle. Christians are so prone to forget their fundamental existence, their position, their place, their identity as citizens of heaven and the displacement and the the dislodging that it entails. It is fundamental to understanding this epistle, this orientation, and it provides a basic orientation for Christian existence in the world. These communities to whom Peter writes, they are poor, They are powerless. They are harassed. They are suffering. We are at a time in the 60s here, 63 AD or so, where empire-wide persecution of Christians has not yet been unleashed. But there's a lot of local sporadic opposition. Some of it very serious. Later, Peter will say that they are undergoing a fiery ordeal. And in the midst of their fiery ordeal... Peter gives them no cheap earthly solace. He insists on the outset on a displacement. An alienation. Do you know what aliens are? They're alienated. They're alienated from their earthly homeland. He insists on... On a heavenly mindedness, a heavenly identity, a heavenly orientation. His opening designation is scattered homeless ones. Scattered transients. A mindset almost completely lacking. A mindset deeply needed. Alienation or exile is the elephant which is not in the room. We need this. Instead, we have a situation where culture wars and secular politics occupy much more energy. They evoke much more passion. They spill much more ink. They consume much more psychological bandwidth and actual real bandwidth. They fray more friendships than any contemplation on our status as transients destined for heavenly glory in an irradiated and transfigured cosmos than any contemplation of the being of the electing God himself, than any contemplation on seeing the face of Jesus. And yet, for comfort to these exiles, that is just what Peter prescribes. Eternal election unto holiness in the triune God. Four exiles. This, this, not any earthly agenda, even the constitutionally right one, or any set of social political outcomes. This is the church's comfort. It's her assurance. It's her her hope in the face of peril, plague, and uncertainty. God who has chosen her is purifying her. She is at home in God. God is her portion precisely in her state as scattered transients. You cannot have one of these things without having the other. It will not be possible for God to be our portion and for us to be comfortably ensconced in the earth. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, there. Is none upon the earth that I desire. My flesh and my heart fail because I'm a puff of smoke. But God is the strength of my heart, my inheritance, my portion forever. That is how the church prays. That is how the Puritans pray. I have recommended the Valley of Vision, that collection of Puritan prayers. Listen to the opening of this prayer from that volume entitled Journeying On. Ask yourself, are these accents our prayer accents? Or are we foreigners to being foreigners? Lord of the cloud and fire, I am a stranger with a stranger's indifference. What an extraordinary opening line. I am a stranger with a stranger's indifference. I'm not sure that I've ever heard anyone pray anything like that in the sum of my Christian life. But Paul prays like this. Paul exhorts us like this. Let those who buy and sell be as if they didn't buy and sell. Let those who live in the world be as if they didn't live in it. Lord God of the cloud and fire, the visible glory presence of God. I am a stranger with a stranger's indifference. My hands hold a pilgrim's staff. My march is zion word. My eyes are toward the coming of the Lord. My heart is in thy hands without reserve. That's an elect exile. And it's as such that we are fully blessed. It is upon this people, Christian pilgrims, that the Apostle pronounces his opening benediction, a benediction which condenses all the blessings of the gospel and all the teaching later to be unpacked in the letter. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Amen.